Wow, doesn't get much better than that, kids. That's great. Amen. If you have your Bibles this morning, I, I want to invite you to turn back to uh, the book of Second Corinthians chapter 5. For those of you who are visiting with us today, or uh, we, uh, we are, we're coming through the book of Second Corinthians, we, uh, we know that the book of Second Corinthians in the Bible is really uh, the handbook for ministry, and we're really trying to focus on uh, learning uh, the ministry. Uh, we're about to embark into a, a major campaign after the first of the year of taking uh, some people that want to really get uh, heavily indoctrinated with the principles of working one-on-one with people. Some people would call it biblical counseling. Uh, but basically just getting in and knowing the principles, how to deal with the issues of life that people find themselves in. And we're doing it with, in conjunction with what we are doing in the book of Second Corinthians. Chapter by chapter, uh, you, you learn and build upon uh, everything that you need to know. And last week, we finished our study on the uh, judgment seat of Christ. And uh, we're dealing in chapter 5, and chapter 5 is all about our perspective of ministry, and certainly the perspective we should have in everything that we do for the Lord should be in the light of that day when we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, and I, I got to tell you, um, I think probably that was the, uh, the most practical, comprehensive study of it I, I ever did uh, in dealing with this subject. Over the years, you know, I preached on it many, many times. I uh, in depth. I, I taught it, um, you know, when people ask questions on a Bible study on Thursday night over the years. I know uh, myself at least eight or nine times I've taught the seven judgments and, and, and taught it there. Uh, but uh, this was uh, probably as complete as, as it could ever be that I could do it anyhow, uh, laying out both chapters of 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and, and 2 Corinthians chapter 5, which really form the definitive chapters on the subject. We laid them out parallel, side by side, week after week, two weeks in a row. Then we added all the other material and basically uh, saw how the chapters really complete themselves in this great study. So you should have it now and should have it in your Bible and should be broken down the way I broke it down for you, very easily format. But today I want to move into the next section in this great chapter. And I want to deal with uh, our perspective on ministry as a child of God from another aspect. Now, I told you that chapter 5 of the book of 2 Corinthians deals with our perspective of ministry. And if you don't, I, I know you don't have it marked yet because I didn't tell you this, but in this chapter, you deal with three key perspectives that we should have. And uh, when you start to come through chapter 5, which deals with our perspective of ministry, you'll find that this chapter details out the three perspectives we should have. Now, we already talked about the first one. And the first one was we ought to have a perspective of the judgment seat of Christ. Today, we're going to talk about the second perspective, and that's the ministry itself. There are some things, if you're going to do the ministry, you need to know about the ministry. I'm not just interested in teaching you how to minister, but you got to, along with that, know and understand what the ministry is all about. There's some things that you need to understand about it, some things that will happen in your life that you need to be prepared for. And then the third perspective that we'll get into next week that will close out this chapter is the perspective of ourselves, how we need to view ourselves in light of, of everything that the God says about us and certainly what he's done for us. 
But today we're going to move into verses 12 through chapter, uh, uh, chapter uh, verse 12 through uh, verse 16. And again, some great practical material here in dealing with people uh, as you learn the ministry. And you know, my goal as we're doing this is, is to get, the exp- get you as much experience as I can helping you get the hands-on with people. I, I told somebody this week, and, you know, uh, you know, people, when they come in, they're, they're not always going to make it. Uh, many people have problems that they're just not going to do what they need to do. And I, I, never get, I never look at people with problems, and no matter how drastic they may be, uh, I, I never not try to help them. And I told somebody this week that there's many times... <coughs> that someone comes to me and they say, I got this problem, this problem, and this problem. When you put it all together, the problems are staggering. And I know in my mind, just from experience, that there's a good chance this person is not going to make it. Not because God can't do it, but because their life is so complicated and they're so undisciplined and so unstructured, (laughs) there just isn't any way they're going to overcome that. But in spite of that, I still give them one, two, three people to work with to help them. And I told this person this week that there's many times that, that when I put somebody with somebody to work or a couple of you to work with somebody, in back of my mind, and I would never say this to you or that person, but in the back of my mind, I say, you know what, this is going to be really, this is going to be akin to the Red Sea crossing if this person makes this. But it doesn't matter because what I want to do is get you as much experience as I can. You'll learn as much from people that don't make it as you do from people that do make it. In ministry, not everybody is going to make it. And you can't walk around only looking at the aspect of all the good things that happen when uh, they, they make it. There's good things that come out of it when they don't make it for you, not for them. They'll continue on in their path of making more bad choices and having more problems in their life. Hopefully someday they'll turn the corner on it. But it doesn't, it doesn't matter from the aspect that you get the experience. You get the ability to have your, your feelings uh, uh, pulled and stretched, your emotions stretched, use the biblical principles, and you get to the point where you get the experience of learning how to develop yourself. And that's really what I want. Developing you is the number one thing that I have to do. The rest will take care of itself. I can't make people do what's right. So when people come in, I look at it, well, I hope you make it. We'll do everything we can to to give you the best chance we can. But you know as well as I do, when it's all said and done, it's what you decide you're going to do. No, that's wrong. It's what you decide you're going to change about your life that's going to make the difference. But rather you change the right thing or choose to do the right thing or the wrong thing, that the people working with you are going to get valuable education from it in dealing and developing themselves. And, and that's my goal. My goal is to develop you. My goal is not to fix everybody's problem. Because I've learned that if I focus on developing you, the problems of people's lives who want to get fixed will certainly get fixed. It's just that simple. Many times people focus on the wrong things. Now, getting the experience and learning how to develop yourself is really key. And I want to begin to read the verses here of chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, chapter 12 through 16. And then I want to talk about some great practical things here that Paul was going through. I love the Apostle Paul. My father and the Lord, Mel Sabaka, who went home to be with the Lord uh, right, at, right around Christmas this year, that was his favorite character in the Bible. 
He loved the Apostle Paul. And though I have several favorite characters in the Bible, the Apostle Paul and his life and what he has went through dealing with people has probably taught me more about the ministry than, than any, other, any other aspect. I have many heroes in the Bible, and each of them teach me a different aspect of the ministry. But Paul will teach you uh, some incredible things. Now, he says here in verse 12, For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that ye may have somewhat to answer them, which glory in appearance and not in heart. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God, or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we, uh, we thus judge that, we, uh, that if one died for all, then we all are dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore, because what I just said, henceforth know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Let's pray. Father, help us today to glean out of here what you have for us. Thank you for those that have come today. And Lord, I pray that as the weeks go by and we get closer to the first of the year, that you have uh, touched into the heart of these people. I haven't asked who it is. I haven't asked uh, who wants to. Uh, Lord, I want that to be uh, the surprise that you give me. Maybe it'll be 40. Maybe it'll be 50. Maybe it'll be five. It doesn't matter. Whatever you give me out of this group that really wants to fine-tune themselves uh, and be part of the working ministry of this church, that's really I'll be satisfied with because I know in this particular case it will certainly be of you. Thank you now for today. We pray you'll bless us as we come on down through here. And Lord, I pray that you'll help uh, these kids get experience, help develop them, and help them to learn by the things that you teach us all. In Jesus' name, for a sake we ask it, amen. Now again... And we are reminded of a great aspect of the ministry here that uh, Paul's up against in this passage. And it's going to be the aspect, again, of people's adverseness to truth. And, you know, you would expect unsaved people to be against the truth because they live in darkness and not in light. But the Bible says that once we get saved, we leave darkness and we enter into light. And light is always connected with the Word of God. And you would think that God's people would never have an issue of being, being adverse toward truth. But it's, uh, it is, and they, and they do many, many times. He says in verse 12, For we commend not ourselves again unto you. You know, the church at Corinth, in every way, is a picture of churches today. It's what you have in just about any church today. I don't care where it is. You know, I teach you many, many times how that the church at Antioch in Acts chapter 12 and 13 is really the model church. You can take that church and study it, look at it, and you can just about find exactly what we should be as a church. But the model church for not being what we should be is the, is, is the church at Corinth. And when you've got to have them both. You've got to know what is the right thing to do, and then you've got to know what the wrong thing is so you can keep it out and see it. And thus it'll be in any church, no matter how biblical it is. Uh, over my some years in the ministry, I've seen many, many good churches. But I've never seen a church, no matter how biblical it was, that didn't have this element in it. It just, it just comes with the territory. And it really doesn't matter what Bible you use. It doesn't matter how many ministries you have or how many people's lives get changed. It doesn't matter how many people get saved. You will, you will have people, God's people, 
who, just like with Paul, who we're going to talk about today, will resist in the preaching of, of truth. This same crowd that we're beginning to talk about here in, in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, this same crowd who dogged Paul all through the book of 1 Corinthians and was demanding his credentials and who he was. It was demanding, even in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, that he would prove who he really was. The same crowd is, is at it again. And uh, it, it, they just dog him all the way through. Now, some of you guys at some point down the line, if the Lord tarries is coming, you'll probably go out of here and, and maybe be a pastor yourself. Many of you will stay here and work this ministry for the rest of your life, and that's good, but it's only a matter of time before God legitimately calls and puts in somebody's heart to go out and, and, and do a work. And even if you never do, you need to learn these things that I've learned over the years, many of them by uh, hard mistakes, but uh, many of it just by watching and, and watching and see what happens. But I want to give you a great piece of advice when it comes to ministry in churches. And First and Second Corinthians is just filled with these great principles. Now, if you ever start a church, there's a great advantage of starting your own church from scratch, from nothing, overtaking a church that somebody else has already started. You know, I know that young guys, they don't look at the depth of things. They don't have a real base for understanding a lot of things. So, hey, it's a lot of work starting a church from nothing. But I'm telling you, you get the idea that you see a church with 100 people in it all ready to go, or 200 people in it. The pastor passes off the scene for whatever reason, and there's an opportunity for you to take that. And it looks like many times, wow. You know, that's a lot better deal. Here's a building already. Here's people already. Here's everything ready to go. You would think, you would look at that and think that that's the best deal. But I'm here to tell you today that that is not always the best deal. Building on what somebody else started is always a hard thing to do. It's never easy. Uh, you, you, because you inherit some things. Many times you inherit tremendous debt. Many times the church is upside down in what it owes because the people before, the pastor has made some really bad decisions and now he's not leaving because, oh, he may say he's leaving because God has called him to. He's scooting out of town because he left the church upside down. Many times there's church problems that you inherit. And there's families that had issues or have issues and they don't like what goes on and you have no knowledge of that. You're deluded. You think, wow, because I get an opportunity to take this church, I'm walking in. Everybody's going to love the Bible. You're soon going to find that fallacy is not true. You inherit the deacons and the leaders. Many times those deacons and the leaders, they, they have power bases that they've formed that have been around much longer than you have when you come in. Sometimes you have past relationships that with the old pastor, good and bad. I, I come out of the Canton Baptist Temple in Canton, Ohio, and that was Dr. Harold Henniger's church. And Dr. Harold Henniger started that church right around 1946. My mom and dad were charter members in that church, and uh, he stayed with that church up, right up till uh, he retired probably somewhere in the, uh, in the 80s, I guess it was. And uh, he was the only pastor they ever knew. And when he retired, uh, he obviously tried to give it to his oldest son. And that didn't work. And they had a lot of problems over that. 
a lot of people didn't appreciate the idea that he was just handing something to his son uh, that, uh, that he had worked on and they wanted, they wanted something other than that. That was a disaster. And then they brought in another pastor, but here's what happened. Now, this church was running probably at that time 2,000 people. And they brought in another man that was the pastor, but the Dr. Henniger never left the church. He stayed in the church no longer as the pastor, but he stayed in the church. Well, you know how that's going to work. Every time the pastor up there makes a decision, everybody looks at him to see if he approves of it. Now, I don't know the guy's heart, and I don't, I, I, I probably shouldn't say this, but I can't remember when you say it about him, but some guys like that. Some guys like sticking around just so that you can basically say it without saying making a statement without making a statement, but by staying, you're making a statement that I'm not the pastor anymore, but I really know more about it than he does, but I'm going to let him do it. But if you have any real problems, you can come to me. That never works. And after a while, this guy left, and they went for three and a half years that they could not find a pastor. Three and a half years, simply because nobody wanted anything to do with it because it was a, just a very bad scenario. I got a young man right now that's one of my boys that I trained uh, over the years to preach, and he called me a couple of weeks ago. And, uh, in fact, uh, they visited the church here just a couple of weeks ago. And uh, he's down, in, uh, down south, and he, um, you know, he, he took a church that was somebody else's church. He's been in that church for nine years, and he's calling me on the phone saying, look, I want to get this church on some areas in that they need to believe that aren't right, that have been lingering in this church, but I've got some real opposition to it. Now, he's been in a church nine years. Nine years he's been in this church, and just now getting to the place where he can indoctrinate them to what the truth is because of all the goofy stuff they believed. And many, many times you have to, you have to go nine to ten years before you just get even. So at the end of the day, I'm not sure it's any easier doing it that way. I think in many cases it's, it's harder. When you take over and you start, your, at least when you start your own work, it's your church. It's your work. You build it your way by God's God shows you. You make and correct your own mistakes. Every pastor is going to make mistakes when he gets into the ministry. But I will give you some good advice. It's a lot easier to correct your own mistakes than to correct the mistakes that somebody else has made. In fact, it's impossible. You teach and preach and raise up fresh leadership instead of trying to change stale old leadership. And that's hard to do. In many cases today, it's probably impossible. If I was to take another church tomorrow, if somebody, uh, it, I thought it was of the Lord and that's what God wanted me to do, and the church said, we'd like to have you come, and I felt like God said, this is what you do, the first stipulation I would give them, every deacon, every leader, and every elder, everybody steps down out of the position, and we start clean. And if they wouldn't do it, I wouldn't take it. Because I know the problems that you get into. I mean, every president, when he comes into term, he takes over from the last president. You know the first thing he does? He fires everybody and puts in his own people. Now, I'm not saying you go in and fire everybody, but you have to have the ability that it's got to be a match. And I say that because that's what Paul did all of his life. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 15, verse 22, and it's a good piece of advice. Paul himself would never build on another man's foundation. He tells you that in Romans chapter 15, verse 22, because he knew that it didn't work in most cases. 
Paul's an evangelist. He's not a pastor. And in, back in those days, it was a, a, a biblical evangelist. It's not somebody that went in and just hosed the crowd and preached for a week. But he went in and actually started churches from scratch, like I'm talking about. He started churches from scratch. He stayed there for a couple of years, trained up some leadership, put a pastor in, and then moved on and started up another one. But he, he was smart enough to know that you can't build on another man's foundation. It doesn't work very, very often. And even in doing it his way, where he trained his own people, brought up the own leadership, took it from, from nowhere and brought it to somewhere, there's still going to be opposition. And just not as much, and you can certainly control it and deal with it in a much better way. It's just better when you and your family start the church instead of, uh, you know, you start it and people join you instead of you going and joining them. Because we see here that people are going to have an adversity toward truth. It just comes and happens. Anytime, this is a great lesson, anytime somebody has an aversion toward truth, no matter what the reason, no matter what the truth is, anytime that somebody is going to have opposition toward truth that is being preached, the problem is going to always be a moral issue. There always will be a moral issue, something wrong spiritually in that person's life because we as God's people are to embrace truth. We, we, the Bible says that, uh, that uh, men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. They have a moral issue. And we ought to walk in the light as he is in the light, having fellowship one with another. Why? Because we ought to embrace truth, which is light. And uh, you're going to find that uh, there, there's some real common things that you see that people get their nose bent out of joint about uh, in, in churches, that uh, adversity to truth. Some people think they don't get as much recognition as they think they should have. <coughs> so it causes them a problem. <coughs> some people want more power or more position. So it's a problem. Uh, people think that uh, there's many people that, I've heard this all of my life. Uh, people come to church and they say, well, I, I, did, I didn't care for it because he preaches too hard. And somebody says, well, Bob, you know that they didn't like it because you preach too hard. Yeah, and over on the other side, there's somebody else sitting over there saying, he doesn't preach hard enough. If there's number one thing you learn about ministry that you've got to get down is you can't please everybody when it comes to ministry. You just can't. Some people will like what you do. <coughs> other people won't like what you do. Some people will, will question your motive. Some people will question your integrity. Some people will question your honesty. Some people will, will read your attitude of heart and tell uh, you what you're doing when that's not even why you're doing what you're doing. It's just the way it goes. It's just the way it goes. Uh, there's an old story I heard years ago that I, I think probably is the greatest story that sums up the ministry. And these are things you've got to learn. A man and his boy was going to town and take their mule to town to get some groceries. And they had about five or six miles to walk the town. Had a good, strong, sturdy mule. So the, the man puts the boy up on the mule, and then he gets on the mule himself, and both of them are riding into town. Well, they go about a half a mile, come up on a guy out there working in his yard, and he looks over and he says, well, that's the stupidest thing I ever saw. Two grown guys riding upon that poor old mule. Well, they looked at each other and thought, well, we don't want to cause any problem with our neighbors. So they both got off, and the, and the dad, he took the boy and put the boy on the mule. They walked down another quarter of a mile, and somebody else was out working in the yard, and they said, now look at that. Look at that worthless kid riding on that mule while his poor old daddy has to walk. 
So they got that. Well, we don't want to have any more problem than we have to have. So they switched. The boy walked and the man got on the mule. And so they went about another quarter mile and somebody else was out there. And, and, the, and the guy said, now look at that. Look at that. Look at that dad making his boy walk while he's riding that mule. So when they finally got to town, the man and the guy were carrying the mule. <laughs> you can't please everybody. You just can't. In ministry, you just simply cannot please anybody. And, and lack of leadership is, is trying to please everybody. Lack of leadership is the fact that you try to please everybody. Leaders just lead. Uh, I'll give you a great example, and I hear it all the time, and it, it's just the way it is. You know, we have softball and we have volleyball. We're always trying to decide where we're going to go to eat. And we got about two choices that really accomplish what we want to accomplish. Because to me, it isn't about eating. It's about having a place where you can go where everybody can be that new people can fellowship with the old people. I don't care what they have. There have been many a times that I just went to be there with the people. But, you know, somebody will say, well, we're going to Pappy's this year. Oh, I hate Pappy. I ain't crazy about Pappy's either. Somebody said, we're going to Jason's Deli. Oh, we're going there again? We used to went to Funhouse Pizza out there in, in Lee Summit, and, and, you know, we outgrew that place. And, you, you know, wherever you decide to go, you just always are going to have somebody that says, oh, I don't like that place. Somebody else says, oh, it's my favorite place. Oh, I hate that place. Well, ah, the pizza's no good. It, you know what? You, you, you just can't deal with that. You just say, here's where we're going. If I see you, I see you. Get it together. It's not about what you eat or where you eat. It's about the people you're going there to minister to. Amen. Well, thank you. Now, I don't want to hear any more complaining about where we go to eat. <laughs> In ministry, you simply can't please everybody. So you know what? You don't try. You just preach the truth. And let it fall. And you're going to have people, as we're seeing here with Paul, and this is something you need to learn if you're going to work with people. Truth will always produce adversity. And Paul is experiencing all of this. And, you know, you will too when you get into the aspect of ministry. This is why this second section is dealing with our perspective on ministry, our ministry. You're going to have the opposition just as sure as the sun's coming up tomorrow. You remember in, in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians chapter 3, well, the old crowd of Christians are at it again. And they're bringing back into question here Paul's authority to do and to say what he's doing. And that's really the subject of verse 12. And at this point, Paul's not going there anymore. He's not dealing with it again. And what he has to answer uh, in chapter 3, he's not again going to go through all the accusations and all the cheap shots that were taken at him. He simply at this point stays focused on the job that God has called him to do, and that is building people and building a church. You know, years ago, I, 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 so much of my life in ministry was forged by my father and the Lord Mel Sabaka. He was really, in my early years, laid the foundation, taught me great <coughs> concepts of ministry. And I would watch him go through many of the things that that I experienced today and have for 35 years in ministry. Watch what some of you go through. And, you know, I watch you struggle when you work with people, just as I struggled when I worked with people. And I never, I watched him because 
You know, you hear me talk about him, and if you could have been at his funeral, you'd have found out 800 people there that, that I mean, they were the, he was the apostle Paul of their life, and he put so many young men into ministry. But I got to tell you, not everybody liked Mel Sabaka. You only hear the good things I talk about it. There was plenty of people that didn't like him because he preached the truth. And he preached the truth, and he didn't really care what anybody thought about it. And I asked him one time, I said, and we were coming, I remember the day, we were dri- night, we were driving back from Bridgeport, Ohio. And I was driving him down, I led music, I played the trumpet, he preached, and we were that little team we did together. And we were driving back, and we were always talking, it was my time to ask him questions about why things were there where they were. I'll never forget this night. And he was famous, he was famous for getting, taking great pieces of knowledge and condensing them down into one-liners. And he was, he was absolutely great at that. <coughs> and, you know, you could sum up his whole life in ministry in about 30 different one-liners that he said. And I asked him coming back, I said, Mel, I said, you know, I said, I, I, you know I'm inside, I watch what goes on, I watch the people that you, 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 you train, the young men and the young ladies that are part of your ministry, but I said, but I also see, you know, 40, 50 people out here that, that they come, but they don't, ever, they don't ever do anything. They don't ever get involved in anything. I said, you, you never change your message. You, you try to help everybody. You're there for them as much as you are for the others. What's your philosophy about that? How do you look at that? <clears throat> I, I have a tendency to think that, well, if they're not over here for us, then they're against us. And I said, and he said, and, and I said I'm not sure that's right. And he says, well, it's not. I said, well, how do you look at it? And he gave me one of the greatest one-liners that I've never forgotten in my life. And it really forged my whole concept of working with people. He looked over at me and he says, Bob, you always build the best and then you forget the rest. He says, you never lose sight of what God has given you in men and women who want to learn everything they can. He says, Bob, you can't make somebody want truth. You can't make somebody love truth. And the real definition of loving truth is not, I love my Bible today. The real definition of loving truth, he said, was when that truth is pointing three fingers back at you that you're not doing what's right. Do you still love it then? I never forgot that. Now, he loved everybody, and he would do anything for anybody. But he realized what Paul's talking about here that there comes a point where you can't stay focused on the ones who don't want to do what's right because you'll lose sight. Uh, I, I, I learned early in my, my ministry, and I, I carry it with me every day today. I want to help everybody, and I will do for anybody who wants to do what's right whatever needs to be done, but I'm not going to spend all of my time and take it from the people who want to do what's right chasing people who simply don't want to get caught. A lot of God's people... All through Christianity, they wear a sign on their back. They had to have it tattooed on their forehead. It simply says, catch me if you can. And, I, I, and he refused to do that. And I refused to do that. Paul refused to do that. Paul says, he says, we are made manifest unto God, and, and I trust also are made manifest in your conscience. Wow, that's a great truth. You know what he says? He says, don't get sidetracked with any of it. People get truth. It isn't the fact that they don't get the truth. It's the fact that they're adverse to the truth they're getting. 
The Holy Spirit of God takes what you're doing and, pre- and, and, and preaching and nails them. When I manifest it unto God in my preaching or any pastor, then that preaching is manifest unto you. And by that, when you get convicted by it, you get convicted by it. My mama used to say, she had a lot of, she had a lot of, a lot of one-liners too, and some of them I can't tell you in public, but they were, they were pretty good. But she told me one time, she said, you know what, Bobby? She says, but I didn't figure something out. She said, you know what? If you're going down, we had an alley. You don't even have alleys today. A few of you do, but alleys are a bygone thing. We had an alley, and it was really dark down there. And we had a bunch of dogs in the neighborhood. Every time you took the trash out, the dogs would bark. And they'd be running up and down the alley. And she said, you remember that time we took the trash sack down the alley and all those dogs were barking? <clears throat> they wouldn't shut up. And I said, yeah. And, 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 I, and I threw a rock out there in the dark. And she says, I told you that that, that, that that shut them up. And you asked me why, how I knew it shut it up. And I, I told you because didn't you hear the dog yelp? You see, when you throw a rock in a dog alley, dark alley, when all the dogs are barking, you know how you hit home? One of the dogs yelps. It's the dog that got hit. And in the Bible says in preaching, that's all you're doing. You're all a dark alley out there. I'm just throwing rocks this morning. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that rock was Christ. And when you're adverse to truth and the rock hits you, what do you think you do? Just guess. You yelp. Now, that's not psychology 101 taught at KU, but that'll work. That'll work. Now, you remember back in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, in dealing with ministry, all the way back in that last chapter, I told you, in defining the ministry, two things the ministry was. One was not handling the Word of God deceitfully, and the second one was, here it comes, commending yourself to every man's conscience in the sight of God, and that's simply preaching what's true. Somebody said one time, the truth shall make you free. Yes, it will, but it'll also drive you crazy when you don't like it and you can't face it. And that's exactly what's happening with Paul. That's why this chapter in this section is such a good definition of ministry. Because he's doing what God called him to do in preaching the truth and holding people accountable. That truth <coughs> through him is manifesting itself in their conscience and then it comes out on the other side as conviction. And that's how it works. You know, some of the people in the church at Corinth don't like it. And when they don't like it, you got two options. One is you yield to the Holy Spirit of God and do get right with God. Or you sear your conscience, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, and you complain about it. And that's what some of them are doing. And, of course, the problem couldn't be theirs. It has to be Paul. And that's what he's dealing with. And he says, I'm not going there again. Now, I want you to look at the last part of verse 12. And here's what re- he's really dealing with. And, again, this is some great stuff. He says... <clears throat> but I give you occasion to glory on our behalf that you may have somewhat to answer them with glory in appearance and not in heart. Now, you know, Paul was very careful that he never took credit for anything. I mean, he had one of the greatest experiences that a man could ever have. He was actually taken to heaven. And we're going to study that in a couple of, uh, couple of months when we get on down in 2 Corinthians. He was actually taken up to heaven. Could you imagine if you painted that on the side of a bus and put it on flyers, you could get it in every church you wanted to? When Paul wrote his account of what that took place, he won't even put himself in the first person when he does it. He says, I knew a man, 
he won't get up there and say, well, let me tell you what happened to me, brother. You want some real, see some power of God in a man's life? Let me tell you what God did with me. He won't do that. He says, I knew a man. He's talking about himself. He's very careful <clears throat> never to glory in anything. But here, <clears throat> let me tell you what he's saying here. <clears throat> he says, but give you occasion to glory on behalf that you may have somewhat to answer them which glory in appearance and not in heart. Now he's saying this about himself and his ministry. And Paul's, uh, any, anything Paul was saying here about himself or his ministry was said that the real leaders of the church could shut the mouths of the hypocrites that were attacking the church by attacking Paul. And he uses a great term, a great phrase to describe them. Those who glory in appearance and not in heart. There's the problem right there. You see, Paul is the real deal. Paul, as he comes to this church, has the real life experiences, the ministry to back up what he's saying. He's been there. He's done it. I mean, come on. We know that he built seven churches. I'm sure he built many, many more. But seven are listed in the Bible. Probably tens of thousands of converts. But it's what I told you a couple of months ago. Those that do nothing will always criticize those who do something. And this is what you've got. Paul has, uh, he knows the book better than anybody. He's built more people than this bunch all put together. But you notice Paul never attacks anybody. He just builds churches. He builds people. And he preaches the truth. There's not one place in there where you see Paul ever going out after anybody. He'll defend himself against some people. But his job was not to attack anybody. Because when you preach the truth, <clears throat> there's no attack to it. The truth does the job and does everything that it needs to do. To some of God's people, appearance is everything. And the reason why appearance is everything, because that's all they've got. They have no Bible. They have no ministry. They have no souls that they won to Christ. They have no ministry. They have no crown. They have no inheritance. That's uh, all they have. And truth is, appearance is nothing. You see, uh, you know, we live in a Christianity where the bigger the church, the more beautiful the church, the more gothic the church, uh, you know, people think the better it is. Uh, the larger the congregation, that, that's, that's what everybody thinks, that that's where God must be. Hey, none of those things are proof of spirituality. Large churches, musical programs are not proof of spirituality. The greatest example of what I call 20th and 21st century pastors in the Bible is found in a man named Saul in his life. When you go back and study his life, you'll find that Saul was the exact picture of what Paul's talking about. By appearance, he was everything. He was taller than everybody else. He was charismatic. He was good looking. He could sway people with what he said. He was the king of Israel. He had everything going for him except character. And when you study his life, I mean, when Goliath showed up, it should have been Saul who was the leader that went out and took Goliath on. But he wouldn't. He sends out, he lets some little guy go named David, and Saul is hiding. And the only thing that Saul will do will get close to the battle will give this kid his armor. But Saul's not going to go himself. And you're going to find in the life of Saul a great picture of 20th, 21st century preachers today. There's 10 comparisons between Saul's life to what you find today in Christians preaching and Christianity. 
and it's an incredible insight into why we are in the mess we're in. And you know what else? We talked about the seven suicides a couple of weeks back. He's one of them, and he's a spiritual suicide. Now, these are great lessons for all of us. Being a deacon, being an elder, even being a pastor doesn't make you spiritual. Going to church, having the right Bible doesn't make you spiritual. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, going back to Saul and David. <clears throat> when David was chosen as king, God told Samuel <clears throat> "Don't uh, about appearance. Man looketh on the outward appearance, but God sees the heart. And that's why he says, he says that there are people who glory in appearance and not in heart. And having the right heart toward God and his church and his word is the only proof of spirituality that we really have. Now look at verse 13. For whether we be beside ourselves, <coughs> it is to God. Or whether we be sober, <coughs> it is for your cause. Paul cared absolutely nothing about what people thought of him. Uh, when it came down to what people thought about his style of ministry, his preaching, uh, and they, he, all through the Bible, they're just ripping him up in every way, shape, or form. He could have cared less. What he did, he did based on what God had called him to do in Acts chapter 9. And what anybody thought of him or his ministry, it never stopped him for 10 seconds. All he was worried about, what I told you a couple of weeks ago in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, that he was accepted of him. That's all he wanted. He says, some of you think I'm crazy. That's the word beside ourselves. That's what it means. He says, some of you people look at me and you think I'm crazy. Other people, you look at me and you think I'm sober. Now, that doesn't mean he was drinking and had a drinking problem. Sober in the sense of doing what God's called him to do. He says, we got a crowd of 150, a crowd of 100 people here today. <clears throat> fifth of you think I'm nuts. The other fifth of you think, well, I'm doing what God wants you to do. You know what? I don't really care one way or the other. He didn't care. He realized that when it came to truth, at some point in your life, you have to draw a line in the sand. And this is where you have to stand. And this is the truth that you stand for. He realizes that. He realized what my old father in the Lord said. Nobody is going to like everything you do. Some people are going to love you. Some people are going to hate you. Some people are going to love to hate you. At the end of the day, train the best and forget the rest. That's what Paul follows here. He says, others, if you think that, that, that I'm doing what God wants me to do, being sober. He said, I don't care really what you think. I don't do what I do to please you. This is what he's telling them. I do what I do for two reasons, and those two reasons are found in verse 13. Look at it. And boy, this is a great answer. One, it's to God, and two, it's for your cause. That's all he cared about. He cared about first doing what God called him to do, and then he cared about building people second. You know, I have a favorite phrase that I always throw out in counseling. And uh, I, I, it's, it's a, one of the premier rules that you'll get. Many of you already know it, and probably most of you have heard it. And it's simply this. I want you to do right. When you come in and you want help, I want you to do what's right. I want, you to, I want to help you. I'll do whatever it takes. I'll put as many people in your world. I'll spend as much time with you as needs to be spent. But the, here's the bottom line. I don't want anybody doing right any more than they do. And that's what Paul's saying. He says, hey, look. He says, some of you think I'm, I'm beside myself. You think I'm nuts. Some of you think I'm doing what God wants me to do. I don't really care one way or the other. 
I'm not doing this for you. One, I'm doing it because God called me to do it. Two, I'm doing it for your cause that the people out there who want the truth will get the truth. Never let people who are adverse to truth keep you from getting truth to the people who want it. You better get that piece of advice and get it good. And obviously, Paul cares about people. Look at the people in his life that he spent his time with. But he drew a line in the sand. He realized that these people in Corinth were wasting his time. He's got a job to do. Now they want to rehash one more time what they don't like about Paul. They want to ask one more time, could we see those letters of commendation for you again? Could you prove to us one more time you're really God's man? He's not going there this time. He's not going there. All right, look at verse 14 and 15. Two more great verses. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And he that died for all, they that which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. There's two great things here. You notice how the first thing in verse 14, all this keeps going back to the cross. It keeps going back to Christ dying on the cross. And what Paul said it many, many times, I've taught it when we studied the tabernacle, how that, you know, the fire that, that, lit, the, uh, that lit the incense, which is a picture of prayer, the fire that, that lit the, uh, uh, the, uh, the candlesticks, type of the Holy Spirit of God. All those things, all that fire they were lit off the fire of the brazen altar. And the fire of the brazen altar is a picture of Christ dying on the cross. Let me tell you something. He's saying it. I say it all the time. If what you're doing for Christ right now and what you're doing for God ultimately doesn't go back for what he did for you on Calvary's cross and that be the driving motivation for everything you do, you're wasting your time. You are wasting your time. He says, for the love of Christ constraineth us because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and he that died for all, they that which live should not live henceforth lives unto themselves, but unto him which died and rose again. Uh, it's a great truth. You know, I think that's the number one problem that God's people have today. <clears throat> it really is. <clears throat> Two simple things. You get to the point, I get to the point where we're unthankful, and we get to the point where we forget what he did for us. And, uh, and many people never do find out. And I know the standard answers, but come on. But truth is, how do you build on that foundation that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, gold, silver, precious stones, and be so indifferent to the ministry? You see, there's the truth. And the truth is, you don't. You don't. You can't have a mixture of both. Then the second thing he says in verse 15, if Christ died for you, and of course he did, he says, and he that died for all, they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Now, here's what he's saying. If Christ died for you, and he did, then we are not to live unto ourselves, but live unto the one who died for me and rose again. What's so confusing about that? See how simple that Bible is? People like to make salvation a really hard thing. You know, 1 John chapter 5, verse 11, 12, and 13, a great passage. It says, and this is the record, God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. You want to talk about saved, heaven, or hell? It's simple. 
We don't have to talk about this or that or what your experiences were. He takes the big, complicated subject of salvation that man makes so complicated, and he boils it down to simply this. He that hath the Son hath life. And he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. Who couldn't get that? Sitting here this morning, you either have the Son or you don't. And you don't have to pray about that. You don't have to look in the back of your Bible to find a date that you thought you were saved. You're sitting here this morning, you either have him or you don't. How much simpler can it be? But that's the way God does it. It's man who makes it complicated. It's man who wants to add all these other things to make it more complicated. When it comes to salvation, it's simply this. You either got the son or you don't. And when it comes to ministry and comes to being in fellowship with God and comes to doing what he says, he says the same thing. He says, and he that died for all, they that which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but live to him which died for them and rose again. Christ died for you. You need to live for him. How much simpler does it get? That's just where it's at. But you see, this is what people don't like about the Bible. This is why when a person starts to get out of fellowship with God, first thing they do is quit reading their Bible. Oh, they'll read a daily bread. They'll read a tract somebody leaves in a bathroom. They'll read this. They'll even talk about spiritual things. But you will not open up the pages of this book. You know why? Because the simplicity of that book and that Holy Spirit of God will convict your soul and all you'll get out of it, like I said a couple of weeks ago. When we're not doing what's right, it doesn't matter what message I preach, you only hear one or two questions being asked. And if you're a lost person here today, I could preach on Noah's Ark. I could preach on Daniel the lion den. I could preach on the great whore Revelation chapter 17 and 18. I could preach on Melchizedek. I could preach on Mephibosheth. I could preach on the life of Christ. I could preach anything. And all you're going to hear, you need to be saved. You need to be saved. You need to be saved. And I could preach up here this morning on the... The tabernacle. I could pick the most boring subject in the Bible that there is, if there is any, and I could spend hours just putting you to sleep. And I could talk about the different animals on the ark. I could talk about the universe. I could talk about all the great stuff. And all you hear, if you're not right with God, is, why aren't you serving me after I died for you? That's all you hear. That's why people say, well, I don't like to go to church or Bible study anymore. You know, I just, it's just talking about the same thing. No, it's not talking about the same thing. We hardly ever talk about the same thing. It's because of the status you're in, you just hear the same thing. You ain't going to get anything till you get past that. Why would God give you anything deep about him till you first get your moral issue fixed? You see, it's so simple. Christ died for you. You need to live for him. What's your argument? There is none. Now look at verse 16. Wherefore, because what he just said, henceforth know we no man after the flesh. Now, that looks a little strange. This, this verse 16 it can be kind of throw you for a minute, but you need to put the note in on this so you get this solved. This is one of these verses that you got to see it for what it is, and then it becomes real clear. Wherefore, henceforth, know we no man after the flesh. Now, this is pretty easy, this part. second part's a little more complicated, or it appears to be. Now, there's the people you hang out with again, see? Over and over again, you keep getting blasted by the people you hang out with. Wherefore, henceforth, know we no man after the flesh. 
You see, after our relationship, after we get saved with other Christians, after we're saved, should be a centered around the book and the things of God. It's just that simple. True Christian fellowship revolves around the person of Christ in the Scriptures. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have what? Fellowship, one with another. See? The light being the Word of God. The measure of, of Christian fellowship is not what you glorify in outwardly. You say, we're going to have fellowship. We're going out to eat. We're going to have some people over. We're going to have a time of fellowship. We're going to go bowling. We're going to do this. We're going to play golf. We're going to play softball. We're going to have a time of fellowship. You see? Those things, those things out of themselves are not fellowship. But rather, two or three people or a ball team or whatever you want to do, however you do it, getting the, getting, giving God the glory in the person of Christ and everything they do around the book. That's what fellowship is. When we got saved, the Bible says our flesh is now dead. If you're sitting here this morning and you're truly saved, you're stuck with a corpse. That corpse is your old flesh. It stinks to high heaven just like a corpse. It's rotten just like a corpse. It's corrupt just like any dead body in any funeral home that they forgot to embalm that laid out in the heat for a while. It's absolutely corrupt. When we get saved, the Bible says our flesh is now dead. And I can't speak for you, but I can speak for myself. I have no desire to hang out with a corpse. I just do not. When I was in the army, I had, because I played the trumpet, I got, it was a good dig. I got, I got sectioned out to play, to play all the military funerals. I was stationed at Fort Devon, Massachusetts. And um, our fort was the only fort at that time up in New England. So I basically, two days a week, I could count on. This was in the hot point of Vietnam, and lots of boys were getting killed. And many of them came from, from that uh, area. So I'd pick up with the rifle squad and the, and the uh, pallbearers and the flag guys and all that. And we'd go wherever we'd go, and I'd blow taps. And uh, I, I, I blew taps for, for the only general that was ever killed in Vietnam. They howled in 21 howitzers behind me on the hill to give him a 21-gun salute. He was a two-star general. I forget how he got killed. But I could tell you some absolute horror stories about funeral homes. I did a funeral one time of a guy who got run over by a tank. Now, this is an absolute true story. And I don't want to give any little kids nightmares, but, uh, but, but I forgot this kid Sunday, but bear with me on here. I'll try to... <laughs> Some of the mamas are going to be mad. You'll be mad at me on this one. You'll probably be okay. But anyway, this guy got run over the tank. And I, you know, and I'm, I, you know, you, when you're in the guy that blows the trumpet, you, you're the last guy up. So you got plenty of time to kill. So I get to be buddies with all these funeral guys. And, you know, I, I said, I said, I said, because the casket was open. And he looked great. Now, he was run over by a 28, 500-ton tank right across his chest. Killed him. I don't know how it happened. But he's dead. The casket's open. You'd think you got run over by a tank. You know, you'd scrape you up in a dustpan someplace. Guy looked great. You know, everybody's always in there, you know, and everybody's whining. And after a while, you get kind of used to it. I, I played a taps one time, and, I, and, and the lady was the widow. She, she, we were, I was about here to the stairs. I was away from the casket thing. And I started blowing taps, and she screamed and started running toward me. 
And, I, and what she did, she ran right by me. I thought she was going to knock me down, you know, because you didn't like what I was playing. Weird things happen. But you get used to it after a while. So I said to this guy, I said, man, well, I always start out with a basic question. Do you guys really put pennies in her eyes? <laughs> no. I said, well, I got to ask you. I said, this guy, he got ran over by a tank. He said, yeah, he did. I said, how do you do this? How do you, how do you make somebody run over by a tank? He looks perfectly normal. Now, everybody was gone now, you know. And he says, well, I'll show you. <laughs> you know how you got the uniform on? It, they, they had a casement over him with a uniform on, and he popped that casement just like he was taking the hood of a car. <laughs> and underneath, you could tell he was running over by a tank. <laughs> he put it back down, fixed them all up. I thought, whoa. One time I got big old funeral home, and I, I got lost. And I was supposed to meet the rifle squad behind the back. This was a big old Victorian place, and I got lost. And I got to be out there because this is going to be a big deal. And if I'm late and they can't find me, I'm in trouble. So everybody left. I don't know how it happened. The funeral director was gone. I had, oh, it was the general. That's what it was because I had to play to the colors when they brought him out. So I had to cut back through the funeral home, get out the back, get with the rifle guys, and then go do the deal. And so I'm, I'm back in there, and suddenly I realize, well, where do I go? How do, this was a huge place. How do I get to the back? Nobody's around. Everybody went. So I'm, I'm, I, I start finding my way through a funeral. That is not the best thing in the world to do. And I walked into this one room, and it was completely dark. But I could see the back thing light around the door. So I knew that door went out. So, but it's pitch black. When I closed this door, I could see nothing. So I'm walking through there, and I got this eerie feeling that I'm in a place that probably is not where I want to be. So I turned, I found a light switch, turned it on, turned around. There were four bodies in there and they had them all propped up, draining them or whatever they do with them. And I mean, I thought to myself, Ugh, exit stage left, man. I'll tell you what. I got no desire to hang out with a corpse. And if you're here this morning and you're saved, your flesh is that corpse. You're just like those people hanging on the meat hooks in there. You're just like that guy that ran over the tank. I didn't. I wanted out of there as fast as I could. You know what? Because I'm alive and they're dead. And we don't like dead people. So why do you get along with your flesh so well? See? Now you say, well, those were two graphic illustrations. Yeah, but you got the point now. You never go to another funeral again, but that's okay. That's okay. But he says, wherefore, henceforth, know we no man after the flesh. The New Testament local church does not exist for entertainment. The New Testament local church does not exist for socializing. The New Testament church doesn't exist for partying unto itself, but rather that everything that we do, the underlying theme, the underlying goal is for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Yet, I got to tell you, you can entertain people. Party? Well, this place is one party after another. We go someplace and, I, and it takes us an hour to say goodbye. We have fun in everything we do. Socializing? We are the most socialized, unsocialized mitfits I ever met in my life. But the goal's different. It's built around a book. 
There isn't anybody for the, I'd say 95% of you that when we're someplace and somebody comes in as a stranger that somebody brings in, that everybody's thinking the same thing. You may not act on it, but you know that there's a person who probably may be lost and somebody brought them and you want to make sure that they get what they need. I see it. I see it all the time. I watch some of you react to people and do everything you're supposed to do because you pick up on that. That's what, it doesn't matter what you do as long as the bottom line is the Word of God in, in dealing with people. We see it in softball. We see it in volleyball. And there's a family right now that came out to play last year uh, in, in, in softball, and uh, they're lost, and you guys made such an impression on them just because of the spirit that you had of bringing them in and, and some of you young men doing things with their kids. You have no idea of the impact that you made simply because the goal is right. You see, we can party that. We can socialize. We can do all the fun things. The bottom line is our fellowship always has to be based what Christ did for us in that book going back to Calvary. It's just simply that, encouraging and building people. Then the last part of verse 16, and this is where might look a little confusing, but this will be a good piece to get straightened out. You'll want to get this note in your Bible today. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know him no more. Now, that's a weird verse. Here I am up here telling you to walk with Christ, have a relationship with Christ, and there's a verse that says, don't, don't henceforth know him no more. What's that all about? Now, that's a great principle for all of us. It only looks a little confusing. You'll see the reality of it when I explain it here in a minute. But in studying the Bible, you have to have a balance. And you hear me teach about it all the time, that the Bible is doctrinally, historically, inspirationally. You've got to have a balance between the three. And what he's saying here is this, and this is the first note you want to get down. Knowing Christ after the flesh, when he talks about this, it's a reference to the first coming of Christ. That'd be a reference to Christ's earthly ministry. That'll be a reference to your books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in the early part of the book of Acts. His early ministry at the first coming of Christ. Now, I got to be the first to tell you, there's some great material for all of us in those books. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are phenomenal historical books. I think that every Christian at some point needs to take a study on the life of Christ. I think that the uh, Chronicle of Christ's three and a half years in ministry is, is an incredible study. I think that you learn a lot about human nature in people by studying who he deals with. I think that Matthew presents him one way, Luke presents him another, Mark presents him another, John another. You've heard me say it many, many times. I think the, uh, in, in one of the Gospels, you have the most clearest chronology of the last week of his life from when he goes into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Every day is accounted for right down the line that shows you absolutely that there's no such thing as uh, Good Friday. It's Bad Wednesday when you see it from the Bible. That's invaluable. I don't even know how to tell you how important that is. The, but, but, but in spite of all that, he says, yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, his earthly ministry, yet now henceforth know we him no more. But here's what he's saying. The power of a victorious Christian life and the ministry 
and building people and building your relationship with God and building this church is not found in the life of Christ. It's not found in the earthly ministry or the four gospels, but it's found after the resurrection and the power of the Holy Spirit of God in Paul's writings. It's found in the books that he writes to you and to me as churches and individuals. In church history, you had a group called the Polyseans. And the Polyseans were greatly persecuted by the Roman Catholic Church. And the reason why that they were persecuted, because the Polyseans were saying, well, as a church, we put the emphasis on Paul's writings. The Roman Catholic Church was putting the emphasis on Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the kingdom. They were busy trying to prove everybody Peter was the first pope out of Matthew chapter 16. They were busy doing all of this. These guys said, you're out of your mind. The books that write to us the books that go to us that help us build the right relationship with God or the books that Paul wrote. And since they're called Polyseans because they put the emphasis on Paul's writings. You know what we do in this church? We do the exact same thing. You know why? Because the Bible says, yea, that we have known Christ after the flesh, yet henceforth know we him no more. You don't put the emphasis on the first coming of Christ. Oh, you study it, you get everything out of it, but you realize the balance. If you want to have the victorious Christian life, you don't get it out of the historical books. You get it out of the books that Paul wrote you, and the whole thing fills around Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's where it's at. For a child of God, the victory, the Christian life, takes place after Acts 1 and 2. It takes place after the Holy Spirit of God comes. Now, you all know this great verse, and it's a verse that I'll probably have marked in your Bible. It's Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. It says that I may know Him. You want to know Him? I want to know Christ. Do you? You want to know Him in the way that you minister and you become everything to Him in a relationship? Absolutely, Bob. That I may know Him. Look where it starts. Power of His resurrection. See? Fellowship of His suffering. Being made conformable unto His death. The Christian life and the victory of it for you and for me starts after the resurrection of Christ when the Holy Spirit of God comes. All this starts after the resurrection and that's when you put it into your life and that's what you build on. The power for you and for me in life and ministry is in the power of a risen Savior. Do you ever see the books that Paul writes to you? Do you ever see how that works? Now, I don't know if you know it or not. Ten in the Bible is the number of the Gentiles. You're going to find the father of the Gentiles is Noah. He's the tenth from Adam. You're going to find the first Gentile kingdom in your Bible. It's found in Genesis chapter 10, verse 10. The last Gentile kingdom in the Bible is represented by ten toes of Daniel's image. Uh, you're going to find that the gospel moves to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. You're going to find that number 10 in the Bible always signifies for the Gentiles. You know, in the beginning of your Bible, it says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. There's ten words there. In a Hebrew Bible, there's seven. You see, when God wrote the book to the Hebrews, he gave it in seven because he gave that book to the Jews. But when he gave it a Gentile Bible, for you and for me, there's ten words in it. You know why? Ten's the number of the Gentiles. That's why. Now, you take that and you take it one step further. When Paul writes his book, you ever see how they break down? He writes to seven churches. Oh, I'm sure he wrote probably to a thousand churches. But in your Bible, he wrote the seven. And then he wrote the three individuals, Timothy, Philemon, and Titus. Seven and three in my book is what? Ten. As a Gentile, you want to have the victorious Christian life? Those are the, those are the ten you get into. It's just that simple. Ever see them? Ever see them? The first one's Romans. You know what Romans does for you? Romans teaches you as a Gentile member of the church what you are supposed to believe that's different from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
You know what you got in the next book, 1 Corinthians? You got in 1 Corinthians, the next thing you do after you know what to believe is you start to minister. But he puts your 1 Corinthians there that shows you how not to minister. And then the second book he puts in is 2 Corinthians. He teaches you how to minister. And then he wants to keep you pure, so the next book is Galatians. You know what you got in Galatians? How to keep false doctrine out of the church with the Judaizers coming to that church. But then you got to understand the church. If the church is going to be what you need to be and what you're going to operate through, then you need to understand it. So the next book, Ephesians, he defines the church in the book of Ephesians. But then, if you're going to have the victorious Christian life, you got to learn some principles. you got to have some promises. You know what the next book is? The next book is Philippians. You know what you got in Philippians? you got the 10, 10, 10 Gentiles, the 10 greatest promises to the church in that book. If you had no other book of the Bible and you just had those 10, you could survive. See how that thing works? It's incredible how it works. Most of God's people never see it. They never see it. But then you got to watch your balance. You got to realize that we live in a Laodicean church period. So we got to learn how to survive in a Laodicean church period. So you know what your next book is? You know, book is Colossians. You know what you got in Colossians? I'll tell you what you got. You got Laodicea mentioned five times. You know what the book of Colossians does? It tells you chapter by chapter how to live a victorious Christian life in a Laodicean church. Yes, sir, brother, right down the line. Then you got 1 Thessalonians. That's the next book. Well, we need to have some models. We got all this stuff down now. We need to have some models. You ever see how many chapters are in 1 Thessalonians? There's five. Chapter 1 is the model church. Chapter 2 is the model servant. Chapter 3 is the model faith. Chapter 4 is the model walk. And chapter 5 is the model life. See how it works? Well, you got to round this thing out so you got 2 Thessalonians. You know what 2 Thessalonians is? It builds on the theme and brings you right back to what ought to be the desire of your heart, the return of the Lord. See, there's seven right there, seven churches. Now we got three, three individuals. So you got 1 Timothy. That's an individual. Where he writes to the churches, he teaches them doctrine about the churches and what we're to do. But when he writes to these individuals, it becomes real personal. So in 1 Timothy, you got the model Christian. In 2 Timothy, you got the model ministry. In Titus, you got the model steward. And in Philemon, you got the model prisoner. Don't you know what you need to have in your life to be really successful? I'll tell you what you need to have. First thing you need to have is character. You know what's missing in Christians' lives? Character. You know the second thing you need to have? You need to have a work for God. You know what the third thing you need to have? You need to have faithfulness for God. You know what the next thing you need to have? The last thing you need to have the right attitude. Let's see if it fits. First Timothy, model Christian. There's your character. Second Timothy, model ministry. There's your work. Titus, model steward. There's your faithfulness. And Philemon, model prisoner. There may your attitude. You don't get the victorious Christian life after out of the earthly ministry. Great material. Need to learn it. But you got to have the balance. And that's why Paul says, you know what? We knew Christ after the flesh. We know all about his earthly ministry. But if you want a ministry in a victorious Christian life, hence know him after the flesh no more. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. Okay, now so far, I'm closing this thing out here. And so far... In this chapter, which deals with my perspective of the ministry, we've seen now two out of the three perspectives in this chapter. You want to get them down. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, was our perspective of the judgment seat of Christ. Today, chapter 5, verses 12 through 16, our perspective of ministry. Oh, you got it now. You got it now. But now next week's the one. Next week's the one. Next week... 
you're going to get the perspective of how you are to view yourself. And I'm going to talk to you next week about the seven things that changed about you the day you got saved. Now, you people who are perspective in dealing with people and want to work with me, let me tell you right now, this is going to be a lesson that you're going to use and use and use and use and use over again. So when I go through this next week, you better get it down. One of the things that you will do once you get into these classes that you will be buddied up with somebody and you will teach them to you and you to them and they will grade you, will grade each other and you will teach this lesson right here that I'm going to give you next week. So you better get it down because this is going to be invaluable. I use this all the time. Many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You use it all the time because it's key. Getting the right perspective starts with the judgment seat of Christ. Everything that you and I do needs to go back to the day we stand before him. Second perspective has to be about the ministry itself, understanding it now in the simplicity that you do. But the real key, hey, bar none, the key to it all, the key to the judgment seat of Christ, and no question about it, the key to your success in ministry comes down to one thing, how you see yourself as God's child. How you see yourself. 90% of the problems that God's people have go right back to that one issue. You do not understand how God sees you. And we're going to talk about that next week. All right, and that'll close out the chapter.